0: Thanks very much, Tudor. And um, I really do want to say that I feel extremely honoured to have been um, given the privilege of sharing this text with you this morning. And I trust that you would be blessed and that you would allow God to actually really just minister to you and let this continue, let Holy Spirit continue to do His work as the days and weeks flow out. And I do trust that you've all been blessed by the series thus far. And uh, again, I want to encourage you to engage with the text. This really remarkable. So the passage that I'm going to be dealing with is uh, Philippians chapter 2. It is from verse 1 to 11. And the title that I gave my message today is Humility as a Key to Unity, Christ-likeness, and Glorifying God. Now You may ask, well, why do you want that? Well, unity is something that we see throughout the scriptures that God encouraged us to, to have as one of the characteristics of a Christian community it should be unity. Even last week, as Mikey spoke on the passage that this um, preempts this one, it is all about the unity that is expected to be amongst the believers. We see texts like Ephesians 4 encourages us to do everything possible to maintain unity. We see Psalm 30, 34 encourages us to live in unity because there God commands a blessing. It is throughout Scripture a very important um, attribute for us to have in a community of believers. Christ's likeness, if you ask, well... That is the objective of every follower of Jesus: is to become Christ-like. I've used the term of apprenticeship—apprenticeship apprenticeship to Jesus, apprenticeship to a master, a leader. It is where you want to become like that one that you are apprenticed to, and we are apprentices of Jesus. And so we are encouraged to create Christ-likeness within us, and we are going to be challenged by this text to imitate what Christ is showing us here today, and then uh, to glorify God. Well. People like John Piper and others say that the chief end of man is to glorify God. That is the greatest joy that we can ever have, is to live to the glory of God. And then humility, I believe, is the key to all these aspects. And this chapter today is all about humility. Even the heading is the humility of Christ. It is showing us what Christ did, his personification, as it were, of humility. And did you know that the only deity in the universe that are worshipped out there, who has humility as an attribute, is our Trinitarian God. Absolutely incredible. I believe that's the very fact why God, and <clears throat> the Trinity can live in perfect harmony, because there is humility amongst them. So I trust that humility would actually undo you today. As we look at this text christ's humility with undo you philippians chapter 2 is a chapter about humility this said paul starts off by giving us the motivation why humility then he actually shows us the humility of christ as the greatest example of humility and then just in case we think we can never live up to that he actually says that god is the one that would enable you to do that then he picks up on giving us examples of two characters that everybody knew Timothy and Epaphroditus, and how they modeled their lives around the humility of Christ. And so it is attainable. That is what God is saying. You can. It is a beautiful picture that's going to be painted, but it is attainable. That's the whole chapter. But today, I'm just going to be able to deal with that first section. So let's read it together. I'm going to read from the 2011 version of the NIV, New International Version. But I'd like to encourage you to read it from your text. Follow it there as I'm going to be preaching as well. Follow it through the text because, as you'll see, different scripture, different translations help us to mine out the depth of what there is for us here in this text. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 it says, Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any um, common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing, taking the very, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became and by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore. In the 15th century, there was a man called Nicholas or an astronomer called Nicholas, Nicholas Copernicus. And he made this remarkable discovery, a revolutionary discovery. And that was that the Earth is not the center of the universe, but actually that the Sun is. And that the Earth revolves around the Sun and not the other way around. So you can imagine the opposition that he had to face, because up until that point, for all ages before, it was believed that the Earth is the center of the universe. So, Copernicus made this statement, he said, if a man is to know the truth, he must change his thinking. Despite what we have believed for years, our Earth is not the center of the cosmos, but just one celestial body among many. The sun does not move around us, we move around the sun. In the 20th century, there was a psychologist, a Swiss psychologist studying um, child behavior and um, development. His name was Jean Piaget, and he made this statement. He said, every child, uh, sorry, that statement of of Copernicus became known as the Copernicum Revolution, okay? So Jean Piaget said this. He says, every child must have their own Copernicum Revolution and discover that they are not the center of the universe. Every human being should have a Copernican revolution. Now friends, we live in the age of self. I'm sure you know that. It is everything about self. It's all about self-help, it's all about self-advancement, self-exaltation, self-determination, self-realization, self-preservation, self-esteem, self-belief. It's all about self. Did you know that in 2021, 93 million selfies were uploaded onto the internet every single day? Not to even mention the many that are not uploaded, but just taken. There's a story about a lady, a mom, who was trying to teach her children some godly character and some Christ like behavior. And one day she had two boys, Matt and Ryan. And uh, one day she was busy making pancakes for them and they started to argue about who's the one who should have the first pancake. And thinking this is a great opportunity to teach her something about selflessness in Christ, she said to the boys, boys, if Jesus was here, what do you think he would have done? Don't you think he would have offered your brother to have the first pancake? So Ryan being the slightly older and a bit quicker out the blocks, he said, Matt, why don't you be Jesus today? Isn't it so true? <laughs> we love selflessness if it's from the other side. Now, the ultimate example of self-exaltation we find personified in Satan. You know the description of Satan's possession just before he was kicked out of heaven? It's in Isaiah 14. He said, This is what he said, verse 13 and 14. He said, You said in your heart I will ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephron. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. The so friends, we are never more like Satan when we are full of selfish ambition and vain conceit. but let's get back into the text. So we see the first word here in the NIV of 2011, is therefore. It's not in all the other uh, Bibles, but all agree that, that's the emphasis that the whole story works out, everybody agrees that that's is, uh, helpful to have it actually there, and that's what it implies. And whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it there therefore? Because it means that that which you're about to read is influenced by that which just preceded the text. And last week, Mikey dealt with that portion of scripture, and and the heading for that is life worthy, living a life worthy of the gospel. And we saw there that basically two themes came out of that text. One is that unity should be characterizing Christian relationships, and that selfishness is the thing that destroys unity, and that unity is actually also a, a defense mechanism against the attacks of the world. So there's two themes there, and Paul wants to pick up on those two themes. And now he adds humility to it because he says that humility is the key to unity amongst yourselves and that humility is the antidote for selfishness. So that's what this text leads into. So it says there And therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So what Paul is doing here is basically saying that these are the things that you are benefiting from for being a Christian. Because you are being a Christian, if could it be changed to since? Since you are that, you are experiencing these things. We are experiencing encouragement from Jesus. We are experiencing comfort and tenderness and compassion from our fellow believers and the, and the actual intimacy with the Holy Spirit, the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, that is your experience. That is proof that you are a believer. So now, he says, this... What comes next is what he expects to be expressed among you. um, So this should be something that naturally follows. And what is that? It says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. In other words, he is saying, for us, unity will express itself in being of one mind. So thinking the same way about things having the same value system. There should be unity in love. There should be unity in spirit and in purpose of those among us. And then verse 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So, simply put, summarizing these four verses, Paul's, Paul's basically saying, Because you are Christians... Humility that produces unity and selflessness should characterize your relationships. Loaded statement. Now we know that for all the self-help gurus and those who it's all about the realization of self and self-esteem and, and actually the motivational speakers of the day, that would not be their mantra. Their mantra is quite the opposite. It, is, it says that for you to make a success of your life, you have to have ambition to advance self selfish ambition. It said that you should learn the skill of using your position and other people to further your own purposes. Total opposite. It said, they say that you need to have a healthy self-esteem. Paul calls it vain conceit. And the word used in the Greek is kenodoxia, And canadoxia describes a person who cherishes exaggerated ideas of their own importance. Isn't there just such a description of the world? May I remind you that that is the total opposite of the love that we just said should be. There should be unity in love and the love expressed amongst us as a community. There are two qualities that Paul says should characterize a Christian community. One of them is unity that we dealt with. The other is love. It says, because of your love amongst you, that's what distinguishes you from the rest of the world. And the love that he encourages, we find in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, from this 47. And it says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Romans twelve three says, do not think of yourself more highly than what you ought. So you see things. Humility is the antidote to vain conceit. It is the antidote to selfishness. It is the antidote to pride. And humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not having a degrading low view of who you are. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's having your mind full. Of Christ and of the interests and needs of others. But yet, knowing who you are in Christ, having a full assurance of that, having a confidence and a boldness because of who you are. It's not a low self esteem, it's thinking of yourself less. We know that pride is probably one of the surest ways that you can set God as your opponent. And humility is one of the surest ways that you can get God on your side why do i say that this takes likes one one peter five verse five and six repeated as well in james is four six and ten it says that it says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble humble yourself therefore in the sight of god or under the god's mighty hand that he may lift you up in his time probab says all that pride does is it breeds quarrels 13 10. It says that pride destroys, or uh, pride comes before destruction in 6.18. See, pride enters the room saying, here I am, just look at me. Humility enters the room and say, ah, there you are. How can I help you? How can I be a blessing to you? Different, eh? Total opposites. Verse 5, so in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul is now going to show us what this mindset is. And I want to remind you, because this introductory verse is very important. We're going to see the most glorious description of Jesus just now. But Paul is not doing this just so that we can be awed by him. That, of course, is it. That's where it starts. We've got to be captivated by him in order for us to do it. But he says, that same mindset should be in you. So you've got to keep on feeding back to that and say, what is the mindset of Christ that's being revealed here so that I can apply it to my own life? Important verse. Have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. So let's find out what it is. Now these next couple of verses, friends, many of theologians say that it's the greatest text ever written about Jesus. It's one of the most... Exquisite descriptions of our Savior, the one we sang of this morning, all the incredible things that he's done for us. So I would encourage you to commit this passage of Scripture to memory and meditate on it many times. Let every line, every word (laughs) have its full play in your life and you will be a transformed person you will see christ's likeness flow out of you that's what i believe i think that is what paul is getting at you sorry so many say that this portion of the text was actually like a creed amongst the early believers and it became a hymn sung in the early church so it's well worth meditating on it for hours and hours okay So Paul is going to introduce us now to this Jesus and show us basically the humility of Christ. But to fully understand it, he wants us to have a glimpse into the position that Jesus held before he came in human form. And so he puts in this line. It's only a couple of words, but it is loaded with significance. He says, who, describing Jesus, being in very nature God, The uh, the ESV says, being in the form of God. So, I want to draw your attention to a couple of these words. First of all, that very nature or form. The Greek word is morphe. And that Greek word means that morphe or form or very nature means the essential essence of something, the true character that can never change. Very important. It is that which is true of a person or of, of some, something that can never change. Okay? Very important. And the other word is being. Being, put in there, has two significances about it. The one is the fact that it describes the same, it says it describes the essence of a substance, the intrinsic qualities of that substance. Being, okay? And it says it is a word that is in the what is called the present active participle. Which means it is something that is, is true now or was true. Has always been true, is true now, and will forever be so. Okay. So basically, Paul is repeating himself here in these couple of words. He is emphasizing that, that Christ's true nature never changed, that he was 100% God in heaven from infinite, infinite times, eternity, no, to eternity. He will always be 100% God. So even in his coming to earth, he did not lose anything of his godliness, of his true character. Very important statement. That's why it's repeated. When they repeat the thing directly after each other is to emphasize its importance. Now, why is it so important, friends? I believe because it is the most important question that every person will have to answer. And that is, who is Jesus? And your response to that or my response to that or every single human being's response to that will determine their eternal status who is jesus and what do you do with that jesus what is your response to who he is because you see no one that has ever lived since the birth of christ this uh, um, argues that he never lived what is the date today the fourth or the second of april 2023, where did it start? The birth of Christ. So the whole world acknowledges the birth of Christ, that he lived, that he existed. But the question is, who was he? That is what the contention is. Hardly anybody would say that Jesus was a bad person. Everybody says he was a good moral person, or he had some things to simulate, or did something good, or he's this wonderful prophet, or anything. But is he God? That's the question that we all have to answer and that is what Paul is emphasizing here he is 100% god he's got the morphe of god okay it's very interesting even if you have re- uh, dealings with people they all have an opinion of who jesus is there's a whole list actually i'd like two pages of very interesting opinions of people about christ but don't have time for it but the bottom line is who is he for you who is he for you some contest the fact that he he they say that they acknowledge that he is scripture all of that but he never claims to be god well friends somebody who says that has obviously not read the bible or you've read the bible with a veil because it is all over scripture especially muslims they say that they say that he's good and all that but he never claimed to be god just take them to the text there's thousands of them luke 5 just the example of the healing of the paralytic the, the, and John, all over John it is this all over the scriptures that's the very reason why the Pharisees hated him it's the very reason why he was crucified because he claimed to be God and to be worshipped but it says who, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage some translations say to be grasped or to cling on to at all costs the word is hapagmus, which means all those different things it can be but one that really captures that meaning here is the way that the niv put it which is something to be used to your own advantage okay we know that that is exactly what the devil wanted to do he wanted to use his position to his own advantage because worship was going through him to god but he wanted to take all that worship for himself to elevate himself above god or make himself equal, or even above god And what is interesting is that you would see when you look at the temptation of Jesus by Satan, that is the very thing that he tempted Jesus to do. He tempted Jesus to to tap into his divine privileges, the advantages that he had, to further his own purposes, not to submit to the will of the Father, but to do it his way. But what did Jesus choose? He chose humility. That's just what he did. He said, rather, he made himself nothing, Incredible statement. You've got to think about that. The infinite, uncreated, omnipotent, holy God, omniscient—all these things made Himself nothing. The uh, the amplified says He emptied Himself. Now, what does that mean? The actual Greek word is. Which is where they get the kenosis of Jesus. It's the emptying out of Jesus. But what did Himself empty Himself of? We already know that, as I've said, the word being and morphe tells us that He did not empty Himself of His divinity. Okay, so He was still 100% God. But if you've got an NLT, do you know what it says there? Any of you? NLT? New Living Translation? It says He gave up His divine privileges. That gives us an understanding of what this means so what are those privileges that Jesus gave up and why do we say that is so so he didn't give up his divinity but he's a divine privilege as well John 17 verse 5 says that he gave up his glory because Jesus prays and he says father glorify me in your presence with the glory you had I oh, was sorry I had with you he gave up his glory he gave up his independent authority and will because we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus always said he will only do what he sees and what he hears the Father say to him to do and the Father doing. He didn't just act in independence. He gave up his use of his omnipotence. Omnipotence has been all power. There's nothing impossible for God. There's nothing that he cannot do. He didn't, never use it for his own advantage. Even when he was arrested, he says to his disciples who tried to defend him in Matthew 26, verse 33, Did you not know that if I wanted I could ask my father? And what would he do? He would send a legion of angels. Jesus didn't need to ask. That's probably he could have commanded the angels himself. He didn't even need a legion of angels. He could have just by a thought obliterated them. That was his omnipotence that he possessed. But he gave it up. The use of it, not that he lost it, but the use of it for his own advantage. He gave up his heavenly riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave up his uninterrupted intimacy with the Father. I think this is the one that most troubled Jesus, actually. The anticipation of that broken relationship. And it happened on the cross. We know that instead of the intimacy expressed by my father jesus cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me he lost that uninterrupted intimacy with the father of fellowship with the father why because he took upon himself the punishment the curse and the sin and god had to pour out his wrath of them and he couldn't look at him he had to turn away from him because of a holy god that is what jesus gave up in humility So friends, coming back to verse 5, then what is this mindset of Christ with regards to self that we see in this passage and these verses up to this point and what we should imitate? Jesus viewed self not as something to be exalted but as something to be poured out. He poured himself out. For us so beautiful okay next verse 7 the rest of the 7 it says rather he made himself nothing remember emptied himself out and how did he do this by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness so now wait a minute we see the same words here again very nature is form which refers to the morphe So the essential character attributes everything of God is still there. He is that so now Can he be two characters at the same time? That friends is the mystery of the incarnation That's what theologians calls the theanthropic nature of God Theos for God Anthropy for man. He was both 100% man And 100% God, forever. From when he came to earth and he will retain that forever. So Jesus took on the nature of man. That is a massive expression of humility, that he would do that. Because with that came limitations and many other problems actually, in a way. The other is he didn't just come in the form of some royal person or some elevated VIP or anything, but that of a servant coming to serve you and me, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, magnificent, glorious Jesus to serve you and me. That's the nature that he took on of a servant. Verse 8 says... He further expounds on this humility now of taking on this form. This, and being found in appearance as a man, ESV again puts here form, but it actually makes it a little bit confusing because there is another word in Greek that is also translated as form, and that is the word schemos, and that's the one that is used here. And schemos is the outward appearance of something. So if you take a human being, our morphe, we would say is our dna so we are essentially as a human being everything being homo sapiens that is what you get that is the morphe of humans but the schemos is what changes as we grow up we start off as two cells fertilization of the egg there's a cygot a so cygot is this little blob of cells a couple of cells and then they mutate into or they develop and grow into the embryo and the embryo starts taking on some kind of a form but it still looks pretty Then the fetus is where it starts becoming, looking a bit like a human, and then you have the infant that is then born, and it's a baby, but the proportions are still a big head, short arms, all those things, and it all grows until we reach adulthood. That is the chaos. So now, what is the significance of Jesus taking on this, the outward form? First of all, we see it, um, the proof of it, because nowhere in Scripture does Jesus just stand out in a crowd. John had to ask God to identify and form the Father and said, the one on which the Dove will come, so he couldn't even, there's nothing distinctive about him. He does not have a halo. Or that's the way he's been put in some pictures or paintings. He looks like normal man. We know that. Even Judas had to identify him with a kiss like any normal man. But there's more. There is this which comes now, which is said that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, in taking on the form, outward form of man, restricted himself, the omnipresent God, to a single location in a human frail body. A body that was subject to all the pains and the things that we go through, of growth and of the needs that we have as a body, of, of hunger and thirst and needing to be protected against the elements, the very elements he created. Now he needs protected against the sun and you know all those things that is what Jesus did that is the sign of his humility that he took on the limitations of that body and then to the point of actually dying a physical death he was raised again and physical that is a big truth friends that gets contested it is not that it's right here. that is what it is what he did fully but you know what else is about that fact it's the fact that Jesus in his human appearance, form, experienced that death. And not just any death, that's why he adds twice, there's two significance about the fact that he adds death on a cross, because it shows that that was the most brutal way of execution. And Jesus experienced it in flesh. He experienced every blow. every rip of the cat's claw of his flesh of his body like you and me would have if it was us he did not tap into his divine ability to just blot it block it out and let it happen to a body that he is separate from he was inhabiting that body experiencing everything for you and me you know what else it is the ads They on the cross Because one of the things that Jesus had to do in his humility to grow to God's um, will for his life is that he had to take on the curse that is upon us, you or mankind, because of sin. And dying on a cross symbolizes that, because Galatians 3.13 says that every curse is every man who hangs on a tree, referring back to Deuteronomy 21.33. So that's a symbolization of the fact that he took on the curse for us in his body in his being. So, friends, again, question of application. So what do you think is the essence of the mindset of Christ that Paul is referring to here as demonstrated in these two verses that I've handled up to this point? That we are to imitate. It is the humility... It is to, in humility, surrender and obey the will of the Father. That's what it is. And that's the challenge that each one of us who wants to live a life that counts for God's kingdom, who wants to be Christ-like, who wants to actually live for the glory of God, will have to answer and will have to go through. Will we, in humility, surrender to the will of the Father for our lives? You think it's a simple answer, but it is not. I believe that is the very thing that Paul wrestled with in chapter 1, when he said he does not know what to choose, whether he is to live or to die, because he knew it wasn't the point of him not knowing what is best for him. He knew. He said to go to heaven is by far the better. There's no question about it. It's a total no-brainer. But he was wrestling with what was the will of the Father, because that was Paul's objective, is to do the will of the Father. And to let the will of the Father have its full play in his life. Surrender to it. Jesus, did he go through that? In the Morphe of man, the Schemos of man? He did. In the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where it was. He knew the will of the Father all along. But he said, Father, if there's any other way, can we do it? That way, please but not my will, your will be done. And friends, I think that is the challenge that we all face. So many times, I think I wrestle and prayer and all that should not be God. Can I force my will upon you and just pray and get the whole world to pray and pray your will into being? It is not, it is pray, what is your will in this situation? What do you want for me? Even if it involves suffering, prolonged suffering, even if it means that I'm called to a country where I just don't want to be for the sake of the gospel. Even if it means that I live in a place proclaiming the gospel and there's an earthquake and everything is gone. Can you still in humility submit and surrender to the will of the Father and obey it to the point of your cross, what it means for you? It says, verse 9, Therefore, okay, and the question, wherefore? You think it could be what follows, that God exalts him because of him dying, dying on a cross? Yes, it is, but that is only a portion of it. The true essence of it is the fact that Jesus, in humility, surrendered to the will of the Father and obeyed it to the very end. For him it meant to give up his divine privileges. God, we don't have divine privileges. There's never a question for us that we even give that up. amazing yet we can so struggle with the privileges that we assume we should have as children of God indoctrinated by prosperity and all those things can you give it up so they're saying Jesus had to give that up he had to take on the limitations of a physical body and go through it live a perfect life of no sin in that form, not in his divine way, but in his, that form, means he had to wrestle through things. He had to resist temptation, like you and me would resist temptation. But he could do it, and God empowers us. It's in the next passage that we can do it. You'll see we can do it. So that is why I think it continues to say that God, then therefore, is because of him submitting to the will of the Father in humility, And obeying it that god exalted him to the highest place no one else not himself god meaning the father exalted christ to the highest place and what is that highest place that highest place is the right hand of the father it is throughout scripture it's prophesied in the old testament and the wrestle around that passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, where it is whose son is the Christ. It is all about this thing. They quote the same verse. It is Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, "My Lord, or the Lord Yahweh, said to my Lord Adonai, that um, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool for your feet." That is what's called the session of Jesus. You know, when Parliament is in session, all the different ministers take their seat of authority. This is the session of Christ. That is the argument that was in Scripture about who Jesus is. Because if he is the Messiah, he would be seated like it is here, in the highest place of authority. That's why after Jesus' death, he said, all authority has been given to me. He is seated in that place of authority at the right hand of the Father. That is what that refers to. And he says, and, and exalted them to the highest place, and gave them the name that is above every name. What is that name? It's not Jesus. Jesus was a common name at the time. It just, it, it's just Yeshua, meaning God saves. It is Jesus, it's not. It was Adonai, which you see, which is Lord. It is a Hebrew version of Lord Adonai, because Adonai means sovereign ruler. In the New Testament, it's translated as the Greek is Kyrios. Kyrios means supreme ruler. That is the name that he is speaking about here, and you'll see it in the last line. So he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus Christ is Lord, and that would be to the glory of God. So what Paul is saying here is that he is declaring that it is God, the Father, that will exalt Jesus and has done so now, but in that point still would exalt him to the highest place of authority in the universe because of Jesus' humility. Remember those verses in Peter, James? If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. So it's a picture of that showing that, but it is also because of Jesus' humble submission to the Father, that the Father exalts Him, and the fulfillment of all those things that He had come to do—the fulfillment, the accomplishment of His mission—and and it further states then that Paul says that God will be the one to make sure that every single person that's ever lived will acknowledge, will declare that Jesus is Lord. He is Adonai. He is the one that would rule and would reign forever. And we see this has actually been prophesied beautifully in the Old Testament. And one passage I want to draw your attention to is Daniel. In Daniel's vision, Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. You know that phrase? Son of man? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples and of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This friends is why the Pharisees got so upset when Jesus gave himself the title Son of Man. Because in so doing so, they knew that he claims to be the promised Messiah, the one that would be exalted to the highest place of authority in the universe and will be worshipped forever and ever, will have all authority, all dominion, everything put under him. So friends, we see the fulfillment of that, the picture of that in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, where Paul has this vision of this, this glorious fulfillment, where There's a wholesale worship of the Father and the Son as Lord. It says in verse 13, Revelation 5, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, that is Jesus, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So willingly or begrudgingly, you and me are going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is Adonai, sovereign ruler, supreme ruler. So, my final question to us then is how do we glorify God in our bodies or in our lives? And of course, Paul's answer is to that is take on the mind of Christ. And I ask you again, what is this mind of Christ? The mind of Christ was to live in humility. In full surrender and submission to the will of the Father and obedience to it to the very end. That's what we've been called to. So, in closing, I said in my title that humility is the key to unity, Christ likeness, and to glorify God. But I believe that what God is saying to you and me here today from this passage of Scripture is don't follow the way of the world by trying to exalt self. Follow the way of Jesus by humbling self and allow Him to lift you up in His time. Amen.